Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have James Wilbanks on the show, and we'll be discussing his book, Abandoning Vietnam, How America Left and South Vietnam Lost Its War. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have James Wilbanks on the show, and we'll be discussing his book, Abandoning Vietnam, How America Left and South Vietnam Lost Its War. The book was originally published in 2004 by the University of Kansas Press, and wisely enough, the press has reissued the book this year. I say wisely enough, of course, because today the United States finds itself in a situation which is in many ways analogous to that in which it found itself at the end of the Vietnam War. There is no one better able to speak to this comparison than Professor Wilbanks, because, as it happens, he was there at the end of the Vietnam War in his capacity as an officer in the United States Army. He served as an advisor to the Army of the Republic of Vietnam during the process of Vietnamization, So he has a unique vantage point from which to see the comparison between Vietnam and Iraq today. I really enjoyed discussing the book with Professor Wilbanks, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Jim. Morning, Marshall. How are you? Doing fine. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Are you in Fort Leavenworth now? I am. We've got a bright, shiny day. Fog lifted here. We had some fog this morning, but otherwise it looked like it would be a perfect day. That's great. Well, I'm very happy today to be talking to uh, a Kansan such as myself. We're talking to James Wilbanks, Jim Wilbanks, about his book, Abandoning Vietnam, How America Left and South Vietnam Lost Its War. Let me just tell our uh, listeners that um, I've read the book very carefully. This is a pet topic of mine in the sense that... Um, my father was in the Army, and also uh, my uncle served in Vietnam, and this is something that I uh, paid very close attention to when I was extraordinarily young, and I have to say it's, a, it's really a, a great honor to talk to um, Lieutenant Colonel Will Banks, retired of the United States Army, um, who has uh, both the perspective of someone who was there and the perspective of someone who's a professional historian. So he's uniquely qualified to talk about abandoning Vietnam, and it's obvious relevance today. So, again, we thank you very much for being on the show, Jim. Really, it's, it's quite an honor for all of us. Um, maybe I could ask you to begin the interview by talking a little bit about yourself. I know that you had a military career, so if you could speak a little bit about how you, um, uh, how you joined the military forces and your career there, and then how you became a historian. Okay, be glad to. Uh, I guess I probably should begin by saying I'm an Army brat. I grew up um, in a number of places, primarily in the South, uh, I actually graduated from high school in Germany in an American high mm-hmm. school there where my father was uh, was assigned in Augsburg down mm-hmm. in Bavaria. Um, attended Texas A&M University, uh, majored in history. I uh, was commissioned a second lieutenant of infantry in June of 1969. Mm-hmm. I went to Germany for my first assignment in the 3rd Infantry Division um, and then went to Vietnam from Germany in 1971. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that particular point, Vietnamization had already been ongoing for about two years, and so the focus was on the advisory effort, and I found myself first as an advisor with the uh, Queen's Cobra, which was the Royal Thai Army in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and uh, shortly after I got there, they departed for Thailand as part of the the Allied Forces drawdown uh, that was going on at the same time we were drawing U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went from there to join the 18th Arvin Division, mm-hmm. which was stationed in Swan Lock in uh, Long Khan Province. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I was uh, an advisor with an infantry battalion, infantry regiment in uh, that division. Uh, and, uh, of course, that was during the period... Uh, 
of the Easter Offensive, which began on, began on Good Friday of mm-hmm. 1972, mm-hmm. and uh, I was wounded twice during that mm-hmm. offensive. I uh, came home in December of 72 and went on to complete 23 years in military serving mm-hmm. all over the United States, in mm-hmm. Japan, and in Panama. Mm-hmm. Uh, retired in 1992, took a civilian position on the faculty here at the Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, I was teaching national security policy and joint operations, and at the same time I had started uh, a master's and doctoral program in history at the University of Kansas while working mm-hmm. full-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not the way I would recommend anybody do it. <laughs> no. It only took me seven years, but I was a slow learner, I guess. That, no, that's still very, that's excellent. Let me tell you what. I, I have the statistics. You, you're you an overachiever. <laughs> um, I've been on the faculty here since retirement, except for two years when I took a leave of absence. I went to work in Saudi Arabia. Uh-huh. And I became the head of the military history department here at the staff college about five years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, we have uh, we have about a thousand majors here in one class and about 300 in another class, and my I have uh, 32 military historians working for me. That's fantastic. I, you know, I, I uh, yeah, I I I was a big fan of military history when I was um, coming up, so to say. As I say, you know, I had uh, relatives in the uh, Army and the Air Force, and then when it came time for me to actually go to graduate school, I was given to know that there were really no careers in military history. I think that's changed somewhat now, but uh, I I still teach a class on military history myself here. They hadn't taught one before I came, uh, just because I think it's extraordinarily important and extraordinarily interesting. Um, Obviously, I don't have any sort of background like you have. You're, as I said, uniquely able to speak to um, all the issues that will talk about today. Um, if I could ask you to talk just a little bit about your experience in um, Vietnam. I, I had a question, and I've never had a chance to ask anyone. Um, this word we use, advisors. What exactly mm-hmm. did advisors do during Vietnamization? Uh, well, advisors during Vietnamization is is one thing. We'd actually had advisors on the ground since 1950. Yeah, sure, exactly. Uh, but they were advisors in name only early and during the, say, 50 to 54 time frame because basically they were transferring equipment to the French to oh, support their fight against okay. the Viet Minh. Mm-hmm. But once the French completely de- had completely departed by 56, mm-hmm. then we sort of picked up the baton and were actively involved in helping to build the South Vietnamese Armed Forces. Mm-hmm. And advisory duty at that time meant basically advice and training um, of the Vietnamese Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps Mm -hmm. um, to include a fairly robust military school system that went all the way from basic training up to um, a military academy. Mm -hmm. By the time that I got there, during the period of Vietnamization beginning in 69, uh, there was some advising going on in the training and education establishment in the school system, the training centers and and, and those kinds of things. But primarily our job at that particular point, uh, say by 71, 71, 72, was really to go along on combat operations and help Mm -hmm. coordinate uh, fire support, close air support, and Mm -hmm. other U.S. support that remained in country, which was being withdrawn or being reduced almost daily. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my my life was essentially go out with a Vietnamese Arvin battalion out into the countryside on security operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you were actually in the field. Yes. Yeah, these, this wasn't advisory in the in the kind of a, a sense of corporate consulting or something. I mean, you were actually no, in, yes, no. no. I was I was going to say I, I think I, it's, I, yeah, I was going to say I think it's important that people understand that that these are basically combat missions that you were on. No, we would go out. My place uh, normally was with either the battalion or the regimental commander uh, uh-huh. right there next to him, and if it was say a movement to contact looking for the North Vietnamese, that uh-huh. was what we were supposed to do. Uh-huh. Now, uh, one of the things that you point out in the book, and this is another question about advising, is um, the role of close air support and also support from the fire bases themselves. Would you call that kind of thing in, or did the Vietnamese call that into the American forces? Uh, it kind of depended on the unit. Usually it would be the advisors, mm-hmm. uh, but there were some some units that depended on the relationship between the South Vietnamese units and the U.S. units in the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was uh, at Anlock during the Easter Offensive, and mm-hmm. there was one battalion commander there who was calling in his own airstrikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wasn't the norm. Normally, if they wanted the support, they would just turn to us, and we would then turn to the U.S. unit. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got there, there wasn't a lot of artillery left, but there was a lot of tech air and a lot of mm-hmm. rotary wing Army helicopter support mm-hmm. still available. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Now, um, you wrote an earlier book about, was it Anlock? Is that correct? Uh, actually, uh, this book, Abandoning Vietnam, is a reissue in paperback. It was it was 
published earlier. It's actually my doctoral dissertation. Oh, I see. Okay. And and since then, I I published a book from Indiana on the Battle of Anlock. Oh, is that and right? Yeah, I also had a, yeah. one from Columbia on the Tet Offensive that came out last year. Oh, really? I'm sorry that I um I had that chronology mixed up. Well, we'll have to have you on the show three times because these are books that I will definitely read. Um, and you know, as I say, it's it's you know, I study early modern Russia. I can't go back there, <laughs> and I, you know, I just don't have any idea what happened. But I mean, your experience having actually been there and seen what was going on, it really informs every page of the book. And uh, you know, I want to say it's a, it's it's just you know, it's a it's a as they say in the corporate world, it's a remarkable skill set you have. <laughs> so well, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about abandoning Vietnam itself. Let's kind of put it in perspective with the Vietnam War. Um, Nixon gets elected, and uh, now r- remind our listeners: Did he say when he was elected that he was going to end the Vietnam War? Uh, he basically intimates that he has this plan to end the war, and then, of course, peace with honor becomes a shorthand for that. In truth, there was some amorphous ideas that he and his close advisors held, but they really hadn't come to any giant conclusions about how that was going to be done. So immediately after taking office, he essentially um, pulled um, all of those plank holders in the administration who had some impact or some influence or some involvement in the war effort and ask them about the way ahead. And the document was called the 29 Questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, this went out to the State Department, to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to MACV in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. uh, to just virtually anyone else, anybody in the administration who had any involvement in the war, Mm -hmm. asking them essentially what should be the way ahead, making an assessment of the South Vietnamese strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And what he was trying to achieve was some sort of consensus, but he did not get any consensus Mm -hmm. because there were different... Different ideas from virtually every agency, depending on what their perspective was. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a common thing. I think just a note for our listeners, MACV is the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, correct? Is that right? right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then when you say ARVN, what we're basically talking about is the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, and that's just, the, we'll just call that the, the South Vietnamese Army, or you call it ARVN. And right. you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page here. So uh, what did Nixon do after the 29 questions? I mean, how, how did he decide to, how to proceed? Well, he does have some idea that there needs to be uh, a withdrawal strategy of some sort, but also it doesn't feel that it, that it can be a cut-and-run kind of affair. So it, essentially what happens is after all the advisors get their heads together, they determine that the way to withdraw is to essentially uh, begin to prepare to turn the war over to the South Vietnamese, mm-hmm. which would then provide the rationale for a U.S. troop withdrawal on an incremental basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a It's a pretty... A difficult problem, obviously, because the, the South Vietnamese are not being able to handle the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong with us present. So mm-hmm. as we depart, it's going to become problematic as they begin to become more and more responsible for the battlefield mm-hmm. as there are less and less American soldiers on the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see exactly what you mean. So uh, I have to ask, why wasn't it the case that um, previous American administrations had not thought to train a robust South Vietnamese military force? Well, that goes back to the to the early days, and the key question in the beginning was, what kind of army to build? And there's all kinds of discussions in the historiography about the mistakes that were made. And, it, and, and many historians put it in a sort of a black and white sort of situation that you either train the army for counterinsurgency or you train it for conventional operations. Mm-hmm. The problem was that there was a, I think there was a brief window of opportunity to train a counterinsurgency force when the threat was a low-level insurgency. Mm-hmm. But once post-64, mm-hmm. when the North Vietnamese began sending North Vietnamese army battalions and regiments down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, mm-hmm. then the answer is they have to be able to handle both. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's way outside their capability. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's it's interesting to discuss what might have happened mm-hmm. had they focused on the counterinsurgency insurgency in the other day, in the early days, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's also important to remember that the North Vietnamese, if there aren't going to be elections in 56, are ultimately going to decide to reunify North and South Vietnam by force, if that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the North Vietnamese forces, the main forces, are going to have to be dealt with sooner or later. Yeah, I see just what you mean. So then the Johnson administration's response to the 64 crisis was actually to send in American, organized American military units to fight conventional operations. Right. Uh, 
uh, they had initially tried to deal with it through air power, yeah. sending messages through various air operations, uh, the largest of which, of course, is Rolling Thunder. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't have an appreciable effect, and then the ultimate answer is to start in March of 65, cycling in U.S. units. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that happens very quickly. And so then by the time Nixon um, comes into office, it's pretty clear that the uh, the domestic political situation has shifted against this move, and Nixon feels as if he has to somehow draw down the forces. Is that correct? Right, and and Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird uh, yeah. realizes that Nixon's got a very short honeymoon there with the public after the election, right? and that uh, he is always pushing to withdraw the troops and to disengage a lot quicker, say, than General Abrams, who is mm-hmm. the senior commander in Saigon, wants to have happen. Mm-hmm. And why did Laird want to get out so quickly? I think he, you know, being the politician that he was, realized that Nixon wasn't going to have American support for a, for a protracted period, mm-hmm. uh, that earlier was better than later. Right. So Nixon was basically, Laird told Nixon that he was running for office from the minute he took office. Basically. <laughs> yeah. No, I see just what you mean. Uh, so then in 1969, they uh, formulate a plan which uh, comes to be called Vietnamization. I don't, does, is that term theirs or is it, where does that term come from? Uh, it actually comes from the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because this idea of transferring over the responsibility for war really happened in the latter part of the Johnson administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it gets the, popularized basically by the the title that is given, Vietnamization, mm-hmm. uh, Vietnamizing a war. Not mm-hmm. a popular term if you were Vietnamese because after all they had been yeah, fighting the war exactly they, they felt it pretty much been Vietnamized early on yeah exactly I, I thought I thought about that yeah it's not exactly decorous of us to say those things so what exactly um, what, what was the essence of Vietnamization what what were they planning to do uh, well the objective was to beef up the South Vietnamese armed forces so they could assume responsibility for the war as US troops were withdrawn Mm-hmm. And this is announced in, in June 1969 at Midway. Um, and really it comes to mean four things. It's in, in, increase the size of the Republic of Vietnam Armed Forces, modernize those forces, um, partnership with U.S. units, um, and then improve the advisory effort. That, that was really sort of the four prongs of the uh, the, uh, the uh, policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, American units also simultaneously, they start to depart and they start to turn over military operations to new Vietnamese units, or are these legacy Vietnamese units? That no, these are these are Vietnamese units that have been standing up since you know early 60s, late 50s. Yeah, exactly. So they're simply beefed up. They're given advisors. They're attached to advisors, and then they're sent into the field themselves to take over the the duties of American units. Right. Now they all the, the advisors had always been there. Yeah. Uh, the advisory effort had continued even after '65 when oh. we start to ramp over the U- U.S. units. But I would I would submit to you that the advisory effort became a sideshow once the U.S. units yeah, began to arrive in country. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. If if I went in 1965 or '66 as an infantry captain, and they gave me my choice of being a company commander in the First Cavalry Division, a U.S. unit, yeah. and being an advisor in, say, Binh Dinh Province, uh-huh. which one do you think I want to yeah, be? Yeah, exactly. And, no, I and so at, at that particular point, the priority all shifts toward the big unit war, the U.S. The US units that are out in the field. Uh-huh. In fact, MACV really changes from being an advisory headquarters to being an operational headquarters that's worried less about advice and more about uh, operational direction of U.S. units on the ground in the four military corps. Uh-huh. No, I see just what you mean. Well, yeah, I think the rationale uh, behind that is, is, is obvious. What was the reputation of um, the South Vietnamese, the Arvin forces and the Marine forces, the Air Force, so on and so forth, among the U.S. military personnel um, prior to Vietnamization? Uh, I don't think it was very high. I'm most, uh, to this day, um, even belying the facts of what they did in 1972 and even after we left in 73, uh, the Arvin get a pretty bad rap as yeah. being uh, uh, effective on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I think the story is, is a lot more nuanced than that. It really mm-hmm. kind of depends on which unit you're talking about mm-hmm. and what time you're talking about. Yeah, you do a very good job in the book of, of pointing that out. It has this kind of revisionist aspect. And you say that it really does depend on the unit you look at, because in some cases they fought extraordinarily well. I mean, and they basically won the battles. Their engagements were, were you know, they, they, they fought extraordinarily well. In other cases, uh, these units just melt away. I mean, is there any way to... to, to to um, explain the difference? 
Well, I think it comes down to leadership, just like it does in our army or any, any army. Yeah. Uh, when ably led, the soldiers perform well, and when poorly led, they perform poorly. Mm-hmm. A, a perfect example, I think, is during the Easter offensive, which I cover in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the ground in Anlock. Um, where essentially three North Vietnamese division tried to overrun 4,500 uh, South Vietnamese defenders, mm-hmm. and it's an interesting situation. It's almost a case study in in, in uh, Arvin combat performance because, as it turned out, you ended up with virtually every element in the ground forces represented except the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. the South Vietnamese forces. Mm-hmm. So there were border rangers, there were rough us, the local militia, mm-hmm. uh, the regional forces and popular forces. There were elements of two divisions. Uh, there were um, the Vietnamese Airborne and the Airborne Rangers, which were a special unit. Mm-hmm. And the performance uh, ranged from really poor to absolutely magnificent, mm-hmm. just in that one small place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's and, it, and it all came down to the leaders. Yeah, yeah. No, I can imagine that is the case. So what accounts for the uh, unevenness of the South Vietnamese leadership? Well, I think a, a lot of it has to do with... Uh, the makeup of the army. Uh, it had the army always had a problem with corruption. It always had a problem with nepotism. Mm-hmm. Many of the senior officers got their positions uh, because of their relationship to the you know the administration that was in power at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that has a tendency to, to not reward the best mm-hmm. uh, or yeah. certainly retard that. Yeah. And. Uh, there were some progress being made, I think, toward the end of the war, but mm-hmm. it took a long time to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and more often than not, it was necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of core commanders that are relieved in 72 because they do so abysmally, and there's really not much choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Two doesn't have any choice except to relieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, the I Corps commander where Quang Tri fell during the Easter Offensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. So did, did the South Vietnamese not, even after Vietnamization, have a kind of regular system of rank promotion like we have in the United States military forces, where there's this oh, yes, heavy absolutely. review and vetting of everyone? And, you know, my, as I say, my, uh, <laughs> my, my uncle went through this and found it very uncomfortable to have everything he'd ever done looked at by, you know, commissions of people before his next promotion. So did the, did the, how did this Vietnamese system break down? Well, I think it, it it very much mirrored ours because we made them look like us. Yeah, uh, right. But it was still a Vietnamese society and culture and all that that, that implies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. Yeah, no, it's it's quite true. I, it, you know, the, these sorts of military. It's you know, my my own guess is that these sorts of military cultures are largely indigenous to the places where they were organically grown, and so ours has a kind of storied tradition, and we know exactly how it operates. But in a case like Vietnam, where it was basically imposed upon them or they adopted it, you can't build something like that in the, in, in, in the course of 10 years, which is what we asked them to do. I think it takes a lot longer than that. I mean, I know that in my own research, in the Russian case, it, it basically took them 150 years to develop a professional military because, uh, I mean, th- their first efforts at it were, um, were, were they weren't total failures, but, th- but they were they were not um, they were not blistering successes, let's put it that way. So let's move on then to um, the first test of Vietnamization, and that was um, Lam San 719, is that correct? Well, that's actually the second. The oh, first second one's probably ahead, yeah. Cambodian incursion in oh, April of Oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm sorry, I've forgotten that. Yeah, go ahead. And the the interesting thing is, because you have to compare the two, that one in 1970 and Lam San, uh, Operation Lam San 719 in 71 mm-hmm. in Laos. In Cambodia, they, the South Vietnamese go in with their U.S. advisors, and they go in uh, basically uh, beside U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is a it's an allied operation, uh, a limited incursion into Cambodia mm-hmm. with both U.S. and South Vietnamese forces on mm-hmm. the ground, and they do reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they handle themselves quite well in, in most instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in 1971, many of those units that had participated in the Cambodian incursion are no longer there. Mm-hmm. U.S. units. Mm-hmm. So the decision is made that they will go into um, essentially along Highway 9 running from Quezon to Japon in, in Laos, in Laos yeah. to, to strike at some uh, base camps mm-hmm. in Laos. And uh, they don't have any U.S. forces on the ground, no advisors, no U.S. units. Mm-hmm. They are supported by U.S. helicopter units and close air support. Mm-hmm. Um, about 20,000 troops um, do reasonably well the first couple of days, and then uh, President Tu gets a little nervous 
and tells them to slow down, and slow down translates to stop, and they get mm-hmm. strung out along this highway. And meanwhile, the North Vietnamese rush up forces from the north uh, and the south, and essentially find the units, the South Vietnamese strung out on the highway, and uh, really create some havoc among mm-hmm. the South Vietnamese. And of course, the lasting impression is the South Vietnamese pull, being pulled back into Vietnam mm-hmm. while doing chin-ups on the Huey skids, the helicopter yeah, no, skids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are lots of pictures of that. Yeah. And uh, and I, that's a real blow to Vietnamization, and the Vietnamese are uh, obviously a little chagrined that that happened. It also convinces the North Vietnamese that, okay, now's the time to launch a major attack in South Vietnam itself. Uh-huh. Let's hang on uh, just for a second. We'll talk about the sure. offensive in just a moment. Um, but one thing that it kind of fascinates me is, I mean, I, I vaguely remember this. I was, a, I was a young kid at the time, but as I say, I was following it. Well, one of the things I... I I still don't understand to this day is that um, we commonly say that a- after the let's take for example the Cambodian incursion or Lam San that uh, American um, American pre- that is a pressure from the American electorate to get out of Vietnam even more quickly um, jumps and one of the reasons we give for this is that it, it seemed as if they thought that the South Vietnamese were invading Cambodia or Laos uh, it, it was the case however that the North Vietnamese had uh, been violating the territorial integrity of Laos and Cambodia for years, wasn't it? Well, from the from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is uh, where the Ho Chi Minh Trail was. Right. Sihanouk of Cambodia tried to maintain neutrality and po- play both sides against the middle, but he just didn't have the wherewithal to do that, so he basically got bounced around by both sides. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So uh, then, you know, the effort of the South Vietnamese in entering both Cambodia and Laos, one, two, was uh, not to invade Cambodia and Laos per se. It was to disrupt the um, North Vietnamese regulars who were operating in Laos and Cambodia. Is that correct? In both cases, they were aimed at at, uh, the VC and North Vietnamese staging areas and segments of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a, it was a. It's very interesting that the American public couldn't be taught that this was absolutely necessary for the prosecution of the war. I don't, I don't know how they they missed this lesson, but apparently they did. Well, I think it's a pretty hard sell for Nixon, certainly Cambodia, more so than than than. In Lamson, since there weren't any U.S. units on the ground in Lamson, yeah. but there certainly were in Cambodia, and he's made a point that he's ending the war, right. and it's a hard sell that he's ending the war by invading another country. Exactly. No, it doesn't. It doesn't really. It's not very spinnable, as we would say today. No, I understand because I remember. Re- I remember seeing and talking to people about it and how we had in- invaded Cambodia, or we were supporting the South Vietnamese or invading Cambodia and this kind of thing. And and you know, it's, it's just very interesting that we couldn't sell the American public on the idea that this was necessary. I mean, you know, there's a similar sort of thing going on today in the hinterland of Pakistan, obviously. We won't go there, but you know, it is, it right. is something we should probably mention, uh, because that those there are staging areas in Pakistan obviously for Al-Qaeda forces and so on and so forth. It makes it very difficult for the Iraqis to uh, protect their own borders when the borders are, or the borders are porous in that way. So let's move on then to the um, Easter Offensive, which is a much larger, the Easter Offensive, which is a response by the North Vietnamese to um, the, the weakness that was shown in Lam San. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, particularly because you were there. Well, by and large, uh, there was more than a little hubris, if you will, on the part of the North Vietnamese. Uh, and we kind of have to backtrack here a little bit. The troop withdrawals were announced in, in June of '69 at the same time that Vietnamization was announced at Midway by Nixon. The first 25,000 departed in August of 69. Subsequent withdrawals were supposed to be predicated on how the Vietnamization effort was going, what was happening on the battlefield, and how the peace talks were going in Paris. But once those uh, troop withdrawals began, they achieved their own momentum, irrespective of the three criteria that I just mentioned. And you have a total of 14 increments that that become... Uh, almost regularized in their occurrence. And, in fact, Nixon goes out of his way to announce the next one as one is being accomplished. Um, so, so this is the classic timetable for withdrawal that the Bush administration right. just doesn't want at all. Yeah, There were only a couple, if I remember right, that were postponed, but only briefly. And, in fact, in 1972, while we're in the midst of, of this massive North Vietnamese invasion, and the outcome is still very much in question. Uh, we withdraw 100,000 troops. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting if you're one of the guys like me who was left out in the field while that's all going on, but that's another story all well, What were you thinking when they announced that? Well, actually, I was too busy to be worried about it, whether <laughs> they were withdrawing or not. But, yeah. but, I mean, it was sort of, you know, the irony wasn't lost on me, even despite what was going on around me. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. Um, but the North Vietnamese, going back to this idea that, that, you know, they made some serious mistakes as well. Had they just waited and projected out these incremental withdrawals, it was pretty clear that we were going to be almost all gone by 73 anyway, yeah. regardless of what happened in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they decided, well, now is the time to not, to, to conduct this knockout blow. And oh, by the way, so much to the better if we can do it while the U.S. is still engaged, they will get part of the defeat. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, they come up with this very uh, exhaustive and comprehensive plan that includes a three-pronged offensive into South Vietnam, uh, one against Quang Tri in the north, one one, uh, attack against Kantum in the Central Highlands, and one against Anlok, which is over against the Cambodian border, 65 Mm -hmm. miles away from Saigon itself. Mm -hmm. 130,000 troops, massive amounts of, of modern tanks, um, even uh, anti-tank missiles, uh, shoulder-fired, heat-seeking aircraft missiles, mm-hmm. stuff that had never been seen before in South Vietnam, all of the course, coming from the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. China. Right. I was very interested in the book to find out, I didn't know this, that actually the North Vietnamese would go to Moscow and would brief the Politburo on, on what was going on. I, you know, As a Russian historian, I should have known that, but I had, I had absolutely no idea. And about the tank missiles for a second, were these uh, the Soviet equivalent of tow anti-tank missiles? Were they wire-guided in the way that ours are? They were the first time that AT-3 Saggers yeah, had ever Saggers, been seen on yeah, the battlefield. Exactly. Now, I, I never saw them far south, but I have on good authority that some were seen up in the north. Yeah, and these are very effective weapons. Right. They really take uh, anti-tank um, defenses to an entirely new level, if I can so say. So, in any event, go ahead. Um, and uh, essentially it was uh, near simultaneous attacks, uh, the first one coming on Good Friday, 30 mm-hmm. March. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Anlock and then and then Kantum. And the country was completely and totally engaged. Uh, there was no interest on the part of the North Vietnamese to win the hearts and minds of the South Vietnamese people. Mm-hmm. Um, they targeted the civilians at Anlock. Uh, can, from personal experience, I can uh, I can assure you of that. Mm-hmm. And consequently, I think there was very little ambivalence on the part of the South Vietnamese about uh, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an it was a go for broke all out attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, at at Anlock, we had about 4,500 uh, troops on the ground, and they attacked with three divisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was yeah. about well. Uh, depending on how you count the troops, about 35,000 troops that essentially encircled the town, uh, which was held by 4,500. Mm-hmm. And the battle there began uh, actually on the early part of April, 5th and 6th of April at Loch Nen, which was a border town just up the highway from the Anlock. Quickly overran that and then encircled Anlock and continued to fight there from, with, from the first attack, which was uh, 13 April on up until June. Mm-hmm. Massive amounts of artillery, three and four thousand rounds a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple human wave and tank attacks, mm-hmm. and this went on for from from essentially April until mid June. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the South Vietnamese, with with massive amounts of U.S. air support, uh, were managed to hold the town. Yeah. Yeah, no. This is, it sounds like they fought heroically, if I can put it that way. Uh, the 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 issue of the air support is very interesting, and it comes up again and again in the book. And um, the notion uh, is, and I think that you probably support this as well, that it, it would have been very difficult for the South Vietnamese to hold these places had it not been for all this uh, fixed wing and helicopter air support that was being given. In addition to the to the bombing of North Vietnam, which comes a little bit later, is that correct? Yeah, I think that I don't know anyone that would disagree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just look at the combat ratios there, I mean, it's essentially 10 to 1. Yeah. Um, and uh, most of these elements had come together there sort of. Um, in fact, the Eurasian I was with had been pushed off another position, and some of the, I'd never worked with any of these people before when I first re- ended up in the same town. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and essentially, we all ended up in that position, and shortly thereafter, we're surrounded. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. So uh, the, the South Vietnamese High Command then sent another division to try to open the highway between 
Saigon and Anlock because yeah. it was only 65 miles from Anlock right into the heart of Saigon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. And so this was a pretty iffy thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and consequently, the the, the U.S. command uh, sent everything that it could in terms of air power and, and air support in that direction. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. One, one question I did have about the air support is that, um, you know, again, as a kind of a uh, um, not an expert on these matters, it seems like the, the the close air support was incredibly successful. And you know, it had been it had been my understanding that actually uh, close air support of that type uh, r- really was it was. Um, it, it, while it could be effective and has been particularly effective in recent conflicts, particularly in Iraq, um, that at that time that the munitions and the delivery vehicles were such that it it was actually quite problematic to defeat a a well-organized infantry force or infantry armor force. What, what accounts for the the success of uh, the American close air support in these um, missions? Well, I think one of the problems you always have is you know target acquisition, finding finding the target and then being able to hit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not so problematic when the target is 360 degrees around the city. Yeah, no, that's true. I really so that, there, yeah. it's really not a target ac- acquisition problem at yeah. that point. Uh huh. Right. And but these weren't guided munitions by any means at this time. They were sim- you simply called in coordinates and they dropped. Them. Uh, mostly hard bombs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. And I mean the human wave formation is a, is a is a is is quite a target for for my uncle yeah, and his F105. It was, it, it was pretty simple because. Um, Essentially, we held about you know a grid a grid square or more on a map, which is about you know two thousand. Well, actually, it's a thousand yards by a thousand yards yeah. in, that, in that particular case. Uh-huh. But it was a little bit larger than that, and essentially everything in every direction was enemy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And so, and and the and as as they closed, and some of the, there were really three major attacks during that period. Uh, they came out of the rubber plantations, and they were very easy to find because they yeah. were right in front of our positions. Right, exactly. So it must have been, uh, you know, again, I, I don't exactly know what words to use for this, but it must have been quite a slaughter. Uh, essentially, those three units, those three divisions, were decimated during the course of the battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have documentation that, that reflects that entire our battalions just ceased to exist. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, was it the case that, I mean, do we have, you know, I know a little bit about Soviet. I mean, I, I suppose that these that the North Vietnamese were trained by the Soviets, and the Soviets are big um, on very close command and control, and they're also very big on, um, I won't call them human wave attacks, but not 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 exactly subtlety. What, what, why were the North Vietnamese pursuing? Doing these these what are really kind of suicidal tactics? Well, if you look at the combat ratios, they shouldn't be suicidal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Right. And right. and early on, we don't have any heavy weapons. Right. Uh, we have no, we have no tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have no artillery after the first two nights of the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had had six guns. They were destroyed early on. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, we have some light anti-tank weapons, shoulder fired. Yeah. Uh, throwaways, and that was a basically about it, and mm-hmm. then small arms and some some mortars. Mm-hmm. So based upon the fact that these, even though two of the divisions carried Viet Cong designations, they were actually three Pavan North Vietnamese main force divisions I see. that had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail mm-hmm. and had all brand new equipment. The T-54 tanks were brand new. Right. Uh, and part of the problem was also that in terms of coordinating infantry and artillery, mortars, indirect fire, they were really masters. Mm-hmm. But factoring in the tanks into this equation uh, was much more problematic, and they weren't very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. I see. So the tanks would attack without infantry, yeah. or they would attack uh, in, in the wrong places. They kept trying to break through the barbed wire, and, of course, tanks get hung up in barbed wire fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just weren't very good with the tanks. Mm-hmm. They hadn't had enough training. Yeah, no, I see. So an, another factor in this was, um, the, the, no, no, remind me, I can't, my, my memory is fading a little bit, but did the Nixon administration decide uh, b- uh, during the Easter offensive to uh, reinitiate the bombing of North Vietnam? Yes, yes. And, and that was Operation Linebacker, or I forget what that, that was. That was op- Operation Linebacker, and as it turns out, Linebacker 1. Uh, and that was to cut off the supplies in the south, because these guys had tremendous amounts of logistics support. Uh-huh. Uh, just at Anlock alone, which is at the other end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the far end away from Viet- North Vietnam, Yeah. We're, we are taking three and 4,000 rounds of artillery a day, yeah. every day. Yeah. That's a massive amount of artillery. Yeah. And so they've had this stuff stockpiled for a long time. And that was one of the – in fact, some documentation suggests that the Cambodian incursion 
knocked off the timetable for something that looked like 72 that uh-huh. could have come in 71. Yeah, no, I see what but you mean. But in, in, in the interim, after we pulled back out of Cambodia, of course, they set about very quickly to, re- to rebuild those stocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So um, what effect did uh, the – these were B-52 raids. What effect did the B-52 raids have on the north? Well, I, I will tell you that they began to run out of stuff in June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just and this is anecdotal only, but we received some artillery that was fired at us without fuses in them. Oh, really? Huh. Which seems, which says that they were probably out of fuses. Yeah, and these B-52 uh, attacks, they were um, fearsome. I understand. This is what even my uncle told me that they were. Uh, well, there, there were. We got quite a few around Anlock. In fact, on 10 May. Uh, we got a B-52 strike. I didn't happen to be there that day. I had come out and then went back in later. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a B-52 strike every 50 minutes for 24 hours. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that was really the high point of the attack there was on 9 and 10 May, and the B-52s helped break that attack. And ultimately, from that point on, North Vietnamese had culminated. The fighting continued, but they had lost the initiative at that point. Right. That, that, that essentially broke up uh that was the turning point in the war, at least yeah, in my estimation. Exactly. So then, um, how did the North Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese uh, basically uh, on the ground, that militarily, they lose this engagement. Their gamble is, is lost. But how do they actually view it themselves? Well, they they uh, take a tremendous number of casualties. Um, I've seen figures that suggest that they lost as many as they started out the the operation mm-hmm. with. Yeah. Now they were resupplying and and reinforcing and sending fillers down the Ho Chi Minh Trail as fast as they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were capturing some guys in, in Anlock that had just come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, they realized that they had made a major miscalculation, and the biggest miscalculation they had made was that Nixon responded the way that he did. Mm-hmm. They didn't think he would start the bombing again. Yeah. They certainly didn't expect him to send all of the assets. The, the Seventh Fleet will have six carriers in it by the by the end of the '72 offensive. Yeah, uh-huh. and, a, and, a, and, a, and a fleet like that usually has two. Uh, normally, they One kept two, two off, yeah. offshore. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and it would go as high as four, but six was was the the apex as far as the commitment of the U.S. Navy. Right. They basically Nixon turned everything smoking in that direction. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, it increased the B fifty twos at Anderson and and in Thailand. Uh-huh. And I just don't think that they anticipated that. They also uh-huh. didn't anticipate that the South Vietnamese would do as well as they did. Now they did lose Quang Tri. Uh-huh. But in September, they go back in under a new Corps commander and retake they it. They retake it. Yes, that's exactly right. So then from the South Vietnamese perspective, to turn to them for a second, um, this, you know, although it's a obviously a very frightening development, their uh, forces acquitted themselves reasonably well, though with American help. Well, it's kind of a, a, a mixed situation. They're, they're jubilant that they have survived. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, essentially, they've taken the best that the North Vietnamese can can throw at them, and then when it's all said and done, um, in September, the South Vietnamese still hold Quang Tri, Con Tum, and Anlock, or what's mm-hmm. left of the yeah, three. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and they feel pretty good about that. But the other side of the coin is that they're just flat exhausted. Mm-hmm. Uh, my regiment started out with somewhere around 1,000, and we ended up with about 350. Jesus. Yeah, no, that's... Um, yeah, that's... Um, that's under strength, I think, is the way you put it, isn't it? Yes. Right. So then... Um, and then, from the American perspective, we talked about the North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese. What do the Americans think about the result of um, of the the, uh, the Easter offensive? Well, in terms of the American public, I don't think they really care. To tell you the truth, uh, yeah. it's sort of off the radar screen because we're down. Depending on what time you talk about in '72, we're down to a hundred thousand or less. Yeah. Uh, down from a high of five hundred forty-three thousand. Yeah. Uh, which is April of 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the Nixon administration, this provides the rationale. In fact, he, he there's a uh, big quote in Time magazine that Vietnamization have proved itself. Exactly. Uh, that our allies have, can stand alone now, and mm-hmm. essentially it provides the rationale for us to uh, negotiate our way out of it uh, mm-hmm. in the secret negotiations that have been going on since '69. Mm-hmm. And what did the Joint Chiefs say about that assessment? Did they believe that the South Vietnamese were ready to take over? Um, did you believe that it, they were ready it's to a, take over? A, well, I, I th- <laughs> frankly, I thought that if if we provided the support, and of course Nixon makes 31 promises to the fact that we will provide the support that yeah. was there yeah. in '72, uh, 
a promise that he's not able to keep. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but certainly they would have had a better chance than they had. Yeah, right. And when you say support, you mean both advisors and the uh, close air support end. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because there was this idea that there would be a residual U.S. force on the ground. Uh-huh. And then it very quietly sort of disappears as a as an assumption. Yeah. Uh huh. No, I see. Uh, but but there, uh, most of the aircraft, at least the the close air support, the bombers and the and the the tactical airlift support is coming from out of country anyway. In most cases. Uh huh. Yeah. So the air support could be provided because the B-52s, for example, flew from Anderson and Guam. And from uh, uh, in Thailand, Pao and Thailand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. right. Or they come off carriers, not B-52s, right. but some. Uh, even the C-130s who are flying around are are coming from. Uh, most of them are coming from the uh, Clark in the Philippines. Right. Instance. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea that you could still provide air support it would have been reasonable, I think. Mm-hmm. And then we have just to take it uh, forward past the Easter offensive. We have a kind of peace offensive on the part, and the North Vietnamese come back to the table in Paris. Uh, to talk to Kissinger, uh, and then we have this um, kind of tit-for-tat uh, bombing campaign. They leave the table, and the Nixon administration bombs, and they come back, and we have a couple of rounds of this. Um, but by 73, there's been a kind of, uh, I believe by 73, there's been a sort of the, a framework established by which the United States will leave, and there will be some post post-peace accord settlement. Can you describe what the plan was? Uh, it's kind of interesting. The, the peace negotiations, the secret talks, uh, not the public talks, because the public talks have never gone anywhere. Yeah. These are the ones that were called for by Johnson in in, in 68. Uh, the secret talks that, that were conducted by late Octo and Kissinger outside of Paris uh, beginning in, in 69 are the ones that will ultimately result in the signing of the Paris Peace Accord. Mm-hmm. There's always a problem in negotiations, uh, and the problem primarily lies between the Viet Cong and the South Vietnamese government, neither of which wants to recognize the legitimacy of the other, uh-huh. of course. And as we get closer and closer to an agreement in the fall of of uh, 72, and by the way, the North Vietnamese could become a lot more amenable as they begin to lose in the, in the East Offensive. Yeah. Um, it becomes clear that we're close to forging some sort of uh, resolution here. Uh, President Tu of South Vietnam becomes more and more obstinate because he feels like he's been sold out. Yeah. Uh, so Nixon and Lady Ducto hammer out a, an, a, an agreement. The agreement is transmitted to to uh, Tu, who has 69 objections. <laughs> Those are presented to the North Vietnamese, who feel like uh, here we go again. To make a long story short. Nixon uh, launches the bombing campaign, linebacker two, the yeah. Christmas bombing, uh-huh. um, and there's all kinds of discussion about whether that forces them back to the the negotiating table or not. Mm-hmm. But by and large, they come back and hammer out this discussion or this uh, this agreement. Um, the agreement is exactly the same one that they had agreed to before we bombed them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it. it in my mind, that was particularly, or perhaps, a window of opportunity to get better terms with South Vietnamese, but we didn't we didn't pursue it. Yeah. So, what were the terms? Uh, the terms were ceasefire in place, U.S. withdrawal. That's right. And a ceasefire in place meant that was tantamount to the Korean War armistice if we would have left a uh, hundred thousand. Uh, North Koreans in South Korea. Yeah, no, exactly. Because, I mean, if you look at a map, of, and, you, and you have a, a map in the book, I believe, it's kind of a patchwork right. quilt in South Vietnam itself. I mean, again, one of the things the listeners might not know is that the South Vietnamese uh, sovereign government did not control their sovereign territory. There were large swaths of South Vietnam which were under the control of the Viet Cong with the support of the North Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And that was what was to be set in place by the... the, the uh, the, the Paris Peace Accords. Right. Right. So, and, and basically, there's certainly a Viet Cong infrastructure left, but primarily the places we're talking about were places like Anloc. The, the remnants of those three divisions that were destroyed at Anloc, mm-hmm. they're being reinforced and being rebuilt, and they're sitting exactly where we left them, mm-hmm. which was in the rubber plantations uh, out to the, the the northwest and south of Anloc. That's yeah. where, when when the ceasefire is called, that's where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. So there doesn't need to be an invasion of South Vietnam because they're looking at each other across the street. Right, exactly. South Vietnam's already been invaded. So uh, I guess my question would be, did anybody really believe that the North Vietnamese were going to uphold their uh, 
their obligations to this agreement? Uh, in, in, in my heart of hearts, I doubt it. To yeah, I, I, having, you know, re- having read your book, again, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, obviously, but it just doesn't seem... I mean, I would say two's number one objection should be you shouldn't trust these guys uh, because th- they just weren't trustworthy. And, and as events bear out, well, why don't we have you t- tell you tell us what happened after the Paris Peace Accords? Well, Duke believes that, that he's being sold down the river, and he, he basically is pretty prescient in that because yeah. even though Nixon says, okay, sign the Paris Peace Accords, and, he, and essentially in 300 letters or, or other communications said, we will be there if they violate the accords. Yeah. And so begrudgingly he does sign, but he realizes that if the U.S. support's not going to be there, uh, it's not going to be a replay of the 72 offensive right, uh, exactly. because they're not going to have all of the wherewithal that U.S. support provided. Right. So consequently, in March, all U.S. troops, or the remainder of the U.S. troops, which is not many, very many by that point, mm-hmm. are withdrawn. MACV is stood down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we leave 60 military personnel in the U.S. Embassy. Mm-hmm. We get our POWs back, and uh, the war is over for us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But then, you know, the surprising thing to me, and again, your book was quite a revelation, is, is that hostilities never really ceased. Uh, really, the ceasefire was only a momentary lull in the fighting. In fact, it started back up uh, with great vigor shortly thereafter uh-huh. and and the war continues in 73 and into 74 in fact 73 is the worst year for casualties for the south vietnamese except 68 and 72 uh-huh i see so, so that that's a heck of a ceasefire right <laughs> yeah it was no ceasefire at all i mean it's a ceasefire in name only so then after the united states has left why don't you bring us from uh 1970 Three to 1975, and tell us what happens to the South Vietnamese military, the Vietnam Vietnamized South Vietnamese military. Well, interestingly enough, 1973 they kind of hold their own, uh-huh. realizing, of course, that when when the, the ceasefire is in place, for instance, the Fifth Armored Division at Anlock is looking out into the rubber at three divisions. Uh-huh. So, and what immediately transpires uh, right before the ceasefire goes into effect is the War of Flags. Mm-hmm. So you basically hold the ground you sit on. So of course, before the ceasefire goes into effect, there's a flurry of fighting to claim more territory. Yeah. And then the fighting after the the ceasefire, the momentary ceasefire, is the South Vietnamese trying to reclaim that territory from the North Vietnamese, which yeah. they do reasonably well. Uh-huh. Um, they fight on through '73, and uh, as I say, uh, the record reflects that they they did reasonably well, uh, given the fact that. All of the stuff they were used to fighting with, which was provided by the U.S., is no longer there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then things began to kind of unravel uh, in, in 1974, uh, late 73, 74. Uh, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese are are watching this all unfold, and they decide, well, we're going to run a test case. We want to run a test case to see what happens, how the South Vietnamese fight when they're pressed by large-scale operations. Mm-hmm. We want to see what the U.S. is going to do. And there's a, there's a very vocal element in the Politburo in Hanoi that says, hey, look, we tried this in 72, and Nixon r- reached out and dumped everything he could on us. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea that extends even up into the final offensive that they're looking over their shoulder at what the Americans might do. Mm-hmm. Little do they know that we're not going to do anything. Uh, they launched this test attack at Phuc Long province, uh, which is just to the north of Anlock in an adjacent province in mm-hmm. December 74. Mm-hmm. South Vietnamese don't fight very well mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons, and essentially they fall apart, and the U.S. response is virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the North Vietnamese can't really believe their eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they decide to launch another much larger attack at Ban Mi Tuat in the Central Highlands. Mm-hmm. In March of 75. And once again, they're still looking over their shoulder at what the Americans will do. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, by this time, Nixon is in desperate trouble yeah. with Watergate. Right. And to make a long story short, Bammy Tuit falls fairly rapidly. Uh, and then in trying to maneuver around some forces to to uh, ostensibly retake Bammy Tuit, the entire Central Highlands falls. And yeah. then... And then the real domino theory happens is that the cities along the, the coast, the South, South China Sea, just fall one right, right after the other. Mm-hmm. And essentially, from the launching of the first attack, the South Vietnam falls in 55 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's quite remarkable. I mean, this, this sort of uh, the, the cascading effect of troops withdrawing from north to south down Route 1 
how that that it just becomes faster and faster. I'm kind of thinking like, you know, it's it's not just the rate of change, but it's the rate of change of the rate of change. It just accelerates as they move south. One thing I didn't know that I read in your book um, was that actually two attempts to retrench in the south, that he draws a kind of smaller South Vietnam. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit about that and its effect. Well, once this thing had started, uh, particularly between uh, the battle at Phuc Long and the one at, in the Central Highlands, is the generals had gone to President Tu and said, really what you need to do is you need to sort of truncate, and it was actually called truncation, mm-hmm. was uh, or light at the top and heavy at the bottom. Because mm-hmm. most of the population in Viet- South Vietnam is in the lower, second, you know, the southern half of the country. Mm-hmm. The Central Highlands and, and, and I-Corps, the northernmost area, are fairly sparse, sparsely populated mm-hmm. once you get away from the coastal uh, the, the coastal strip. Mm-hmm. And so what they were trying to get him to do was withdraw his forces because the preponderance of his forces was north of this populated line. Mm-hmm. So there were talks about, you know, draw back in to uh, essentially defend the National Redoubt, which was very, very uh, – Similar to some of the discussions about what the Germans were going to do at the end of World War yeah, II, exactly. because they never actually really did. Right. Um, and of course, Tu's whole problem was no discussions with North Vietnam, no discussions with the Viet Cong, mm-hmm. and do not give up one inch of South Vietnamese territory. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he who defends everywhere is strong nowhere. Yeah. And so what the generals are trying to do is say, you know, pull back from the north. Uh, he he fights it all the way, but when when the Central Highlands begins to go, he decides, okay, we'll do that. By then, it's too late, because mm-hmm. now they're going to try to do that while they're in contact, essentially a, retro- a traditional retrograde movement while in contact, which is absolutely the most difficult military operation to try to do under the best circumstances. Yeah, actually, you mentioned that several times in the book, and I wondered if you could talk about that. That's actually withdra- Exactly why is that so difficult? Well, for one reason, you're moving backwards. Uh, command and control is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and doing it in a manner as such that it remains orderly mm-hmm. is there's a fine line between withdrawing to the rear and route. Yeah. And, of course, the North Vietnamese are going to recognize that, and they're going to just increase the pressure, which is, in fact, what they do. Yeah, exactly. Well, it kind of brings to mind that you mentioned the, the, the Germans in World War II. Uh, they, they were apparently the past masters at this, at least on the Eastern Front. Because they withdrew in order um, for a period of about three years. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there must have been lessons to learn there. Uh, But there was also a a pretty well-led force that had some pretty strong command and control, uh, a pretty strong command and control architecture. Yeah, because that that must have been, I was going to say, sort of kind of a remarkable thing in light of how difficult those maneuvers are, that they were able to, uh, to, to, to keep the Eastern Front from becoming a route. Well, it is the the decision to try to do that. They're actually pulling forces back from Kantum and Pleiku yeah. uh, to try to retake uh, Bami to it. And that's what results in the route. And yeah. once it starts, it just grows uh, yeah. like a virus. Right, it cascades. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So then by uh, 75, it's March 75, right? It's all over. Is that correct? Uh, April 30th, April 1975, 30th. they yeah. drive through the gates at Independence Palace, yeah. and it's all over. And everybody has seen that footage of the, I guess it's a T-54 or something. I don't know what it is, T-64. I don't know. Right. T-62, yeah, going through that. The tank is supposedly still there, but I've seen that tank all over Vietnam. <laughs> there, were, there were a whole bunch of that, that tanks. I was just there in January. <laughs> That's funny. I don't blame them for that. very famous tank. Yes, exactly. It's the tank that reproduces itself. It's uh, Yeah, no, that's uh, – who, who blames them for that? You know, I don't, I don't blame yeah. them for a second. So, Interestingly enough, they have left Independence Palace in exactly the same fashion really? that it was on 30 April. It's very eerie. Yeah, I bet it is. You know, I bet it's all pockmarked and so on and so forth. So in any event, so that, that too, during all this time, he was sending desperate uh, – notes to Nixon saying, what about all these promises? Yeah, and, and that's also part of the problem is because he holds out to the last minute, way past rational thought, that the U.S. is going to respond. Right. And of course, by this time, Nixon himself is gone. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he's sending messages to, to Ford, who's a caretaker yeah, anyway. Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. And, so, and uh, what, what, the, the Congress that had come in is very confrontive with the White House. And uh, it's pretty clear to most Americans that there's not going to be, you know, at least from, from I was watching this unfold as a company commander at Fort Ord, California. Yeah. It was pretty clear we weren't going to do anything. So then the, then the, the calculation by the U.S. authorities then, that is the, the uh, commander-in-chief and the, the, the Congress and so on and so forth, was simply that this was unsalvageable either politically or militarily, so we had to get out. Right. And Congress basically said Nixon made promises that he didn't really have the authority to make. Oh, I see. So therefore, we don't have to honor them. But didn't he have the authority to make them? 
Certainly. I think he did. I mean, he's the commander-in-chief. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. So let me ask you a, a final couple of questions. You know, we've taken up a tremendous amount of your time, but I, I have to – I could go on and talk about this for a long time. Uh, one is, the, you know, the, the title of your book, Abandoning Vietnam. Did we abandon Vietnam? Well, I think it comes down to an assessment of Vietnamization, which has to really kind of occur on two levels. If the stated purpose was to get the U.S. out of Vietnam, it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, however, it was also supposed to provide a viable South Vietnam that could stand on its own, I think it was an abysmal failure. Yeah, no, apparently. So. And now, the, the missing factor here is what if that support that was promised had been there? Uh-huh. And I've wrestled with this for many years since, since I'm really closer to it as a participant uh, as yeah. well as a historian, yeah. is the conclusion I've come to, uh, which I can't support with anything other than a gut feeling, uh-huh. is I don't know if it would change the ultimate outcome. But it certainly would have given them a better chance than they had. Yeah, exactly. Because I think essentially the Paris Peace Accords with a ceasefire in place, uh, along with basically our our withdrawal from the area, and not only in terms of people on the ground, but also in terms of support, really was a death warrant for South Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sobering thing. It, it really is very sobering. So then uh, the next question should be reasonably obvious, and I'm sure that many of our listeners want you to speak to this. What lessons are there here for us now that we are drawing down from Iraq? If you don't feel comfortable well, answering that question, you don't have to. But Well, I have to caveat this by saying that, once again, I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking yes, for the U.S. So, Army. So. Exactly. Yes, no, I want to uh, be completely clear about it, that. From, from my standpoint, I think one of the things that you learned, and I'm looking at it more from, more from the participant side, is that if once you start withdrawal, I think it's important that you don't set up essentially a schedule uh-huh. because essentially uh, that just gives – uh, that abandons all initiative to the other side, mm-hmm. uh, and, at least in my mind. It, and it also uh, essentially ties the hand of the U.S. commander on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, and it allows the other side to then set the tempo for the ultimate outcome. Right, yeah. And, when, it, when, everybody, when everybody is a short-timer, uh, nobody is going to risk very much. Yeah, we have a different sort of different military today, but certainly uh, back in Vietnam, uh, this this whole withdrawal process uh, had a tremendously negative impact on the army. Yeah, uh, and and it took us 20 years to get over it. Yeah, uh, no, exactly. to get over Vietnam and and certainly that part of it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, this is a different kind of army we've got here today. In fact, I have a son in in Taji, Iraq, as oh, we is that speak. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, a son-in-law on his way to Afghanistan as right? of yesterday. So. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we're fairly engaged, but yeah. I, I think I think we we have to be very careful. I think uh, hopefully we've gotten to a point where we we can withdraw from Iraq, but I think we have to be a little circumspect, and really it ought to be conditions-driven, not calendar-driven. Yeah. No, I think that uh, I think I'm in agreement with you there. So. Uh, you know, again, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, in the short term, I have a Vietnam almanac coming out from Facts on File here as soon as I get the pile of proof sheets that are on my desk at mm-hmm. home uh, mm-hmm. done. And then I'm uh, looking at two two projects here. One is a, a unit history of an attack helicopter battalion, in fact, oh, one really? that, that flew in support of my unit in Vietnam. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a... a, a Cobra attack helicopter unit called Blue Max uh-huh. that has a very colorful history. That should be fun. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then my long-term project, should I uh, have the wherewithal to get through it, because it's a massive project, is to look at how the Army breaks itself, really not, not how it does, but at least the, the symptoms of the broken Army mm-hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. and then how the Army puts itself back together in the 20 years between the end of Vietnam and Desert Shield, Desert Storm in '91. Yeah, no, that's a, that sounds, and it's a it's a fantastic project. It's a massive, massive story because it's organization, it's personnel, it's training, it's equipment, uh, it's doctrine, it's strategy. Uh, it's it's a massive undertaking, but it's not. There are bits and pieces out in the history historiography, but there's no real one volume that sort of covers the waterfront, if you will. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I, I was I, I told you I taught a military history class last semester, and um, I was fortunate enough to have a um, a captain um, who had served in Iraq uh, during um, the 2003 war um, come to our class and to speak about. Uh, his experiences there, and it was really quite 
he was a very impressive young man, um, and our forces performed really magnificently there. I mean, it, 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 I tried to impress this on my students that the, the things that were done in that conflict were almost unprecedented in military history, that, that really the Army has so completely turned itself around uh, that it, it, it's just a fantastic project you've chosen because it, re- it really is it's an amazing thing. And I have students who are in the military here at Iowa, and they're just tremendously sharp people, and they're, they're proud to serve, and I'm very proud to have them serve myself. And let me also say this. I just wanted to thank you for your service to the country. I think that I speak for all of our listeners in saying that um, you know, we, we are very, uh, very pleased and honored to have um, someone like you writing military history, especially somebody with your experience. Well, thank you very much. It's absolutely my pleasure. Well, Jim, thanks very much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with James Wilbanks, author of Abandoning Vietnam, How America Left and South Vietnam Lost Its War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a great week.